Hello, this is Ryan Chapman with Fix Your Funnel. And in today's interview, uh, I have a very special treat for me and for you. And we have someone I've always looked up to and admired, one of the, the smartest people in any room that he's in from my perspective. He doesn't like hearing that because he's also humble. That's Craig Jacobson from Open Spaces. So Craig, it's a pleasure to have you here. I know that you didn't probably like that introduction because you always kind of wave me off when I say stuff like that, but it is good to have you with me. Thank you. I, I like the sentiment behind it. I just don't think it's actually accurate. <laughs> I knew you were going to say something to that effect. Well, you know, we had a little pre-talk before we started recording and we talked about covering some topics that we felt would be most valuable to folks who are in business, but maybe don't have a PhD in business and have missed a few things along the way and maybe fallen into some ruts or some pitfalls because they got some advice and maybe misunderstood it as a result, started doing things backwards. If you're starting with somebody that feels like, okay, I've got some sort of business going here, but I really don't know what I'm doing to try and grow it. How do you help them to know where to focus? Where do you start? Well, I always do an assessment of their competitors, their customers, and, and figure out what the objective facts are. Because most business owners that I talk to have, have something in mind that they want to go do. And, and after the assessment, in almost no circumstance, what they want to do is what they should do. Oh, interesting. So they're off to the races before they've even evaluated where the course is. Because how they process information is they go to courses, they listen to Guru, and he said he's got this thing and it made a million dollars in two weeks and you should do it too. It'll make a million for you. And it's not suitable for their circumstance and they can't see it. If it was ever true that what the guru is saying, I don't know if it was ever true. It's, the question is, will it be true for them? But you know, they're, they, they've kind of bought it hook, line and sinker because they'd like the salesman that was pitching it. So I think that the basics of business are very simple. Peter Drucker, your purpose in business is to get a customer that, that has a problem, solve that problem, and make a profit. The reason that most small businesses fail is they run out of hope or they run out of money. So many businesses never get to the point. So I believe that there's the first phase of when you're building marketing, where you're learning your way into the, the marketing structure and how to optimize the, you know, the marketing funnel that you've created for your business. So you have a learning period. Yeah. And then you apply the learnings and adapt. You figure out what to work on and how to experiment your way into making it work better. And then you actually get to the point where when you spend a dollar on marketing, that's the most magical moment that I have with business owners. When for the first time in their life, they spent a dollar on marketing and they got $5 back. So before that, marketing is an expense. And they say, I've only got $5,000 a month to, to spend on marketing. But when you're at the point that you spent $1,000 and you made $25,000, then, then it's like, Craig, I want to spend $10,000 starting next month is like, oh, good. Because now you're expecting you're going to make you know $50,000 or $500,000 or whatever. That's a concept often talked about, but not often realized. In order to, to realize that for somebody, because what I've noticed is you can come into just about any situation. And I, I don't know exactly how long it takes, but I would imagine within an hour, you've got a pretty good, as long as they can answer your questions. A feel for the lay of the land in that business. And land is looking at the customers. Anybody can do that. You know, mm -hmm. you grab the email list, load it into tower data and go look at the age, gender, income, 
education, presence of children, are they renters, are they owners, what kind of cars do they drive, that sort of stuff. Like look at who the people are that you've got on your list. And then take that same list that you're having problems getting people to open your emails from if you're using emailing or if you've collected cell phone numbers, same thing applies. You can enrich off of cell phones or off of emails or off of visitors to a website, email hashes, anonymized information. So you got to go see who the people are and then you start to observe how they behave with your content. So you see what content they bite on, what are they willing to click on, what are they willing to open, what are they willing to go click and visit on a website, which are the most popular pages, what are the most popular places on the pages. So when you come in with a brand new business that you're starting to look at, seeing if you are going to be willing and able to help them, you first are running this analysis on who their people are through Tower Data. Then you're looking at what data they do have on interaction with content and trying to find out, you know, what's biting. And then are you trying to look at that demographic data and then this behavior and see, okay, is there some correlation I can make sense of, or do you even care? Yeah. I kind of come to a theory of who really the, the customer is. So you look at the, who are the people that purchase from you? You, you look at the customer level and you look at the visitor level, you know, the people <clears throat> that visited your website or opted into your email or text list enrich those people. And in many cases, the people that are purchasing, they have money, they have that problem, and they meet a profile. They're married, they got kids, they own a home, they've lived in their house for seven years, 10 years, or something like that. And then I've got a list of people that are visiting the website and not opting in, and they have less money, they are renters, they don't have kids, they're single. And it's like, oh, well, the visitors that aren't opting in so the site's doing its job. There's no problem there. It's doing its job of being able to, you know, on the other side of the opt-in offer, it's selecting out the people to become the customers. So you said something before we started recording, which was that where you see most business owners go that aren't really aware of what they should be doing is they first focus on traffic because they think that's the hardest problem. Yeah. But it, it sounds to me like the reason that they feel that way is because they haven't done this first few steps that you're talking about. They don't know the who. They just think, if I get enough people there, I'm going to get us, I'm randomly going to get enough of the right people. So I just need more traffic. And that's why it seems like if they had a genie come out of a bottle and they could grant them three wishes, everybody's first wish would be traffic. And, and what would your first wish be? Better value proposition is wish number one, better engagement story number two. And what will set you free is setting up measurement to be able to see what's wrong in the system. Let's hit it in that order. I know you were kind of going through a flow. Do you want to go back to that flow? Or do you mind if we talk about these three wishes? Let's talk about it. Yeah, I think it's, it's really valuable for people to understand. Like you, you mentioned the value proposition. I know those are words that we're very familiar with. How would you describe that to someone who, who isn't familiar with the term of value proposition? Okay, so, so somebody's coming to, to your website or to your business because they've got a problem. So why should I trust you and give you money to solve my problem? Why you? Why now? I mean, you got to have a good answer for that. Do you find that people that you start to work with sometimes struggle with these two? Why you? Why now? Yeah. They just think, I'm in a market. You know, I'm in this aisle of the grocery store. I've got cornflakes and I'm going to offer cheaper cornflakes or another entry because cornflakes are hot which is a very bad idea for a business. So they have a business model problem, but you need sort of exclusivity and appeal in your value proposition. So why you is exclusivity, why now? 
how do you create urgency? Why should I make a decision? Why should I not just kick the can down the road and think about it later? Which is what most people do if they don't decide to take action now. Yeah. So you have to have a compelling reason. So that's why people do launch models. It's not persistently available. Your product or service is available now, and then it's going to go away. So you got to make a decision, get off the fence. I know you've done a lot of launches, you know, kind of followed that, well, that formula. It's of- appealing because it simplifies anything that simplifies the problem is really appealing because a launch model says you got to do it before the 21st at five o'clock. And then because poof, the offer's off the table and then we're not going to have the product available until we launch again. So then all you're focused on is why me? Why should you select my solution? That's what the the line of persuasion is about. So, and and this is why so many people come and say, okay, that's what I want to do. Let's do that. And you're not saying, oh yeah, that's the way to go. You're saying, well, hold on. That may be just a simple way to reduce our number of questions we have to answer down to one, but that may not be the right way to go. We'll get back into that because we're going to talk about a business model and stuff like that in a little bit. Yeah. But these two questions are what help you to start organizing your value proposition. So at this stage, this isn't worded in some sort of sales copy manner. It is just the concepts. Yeah. Why you, why now? And that is what you're working on initially to set kind of a foundation for the next step. Is that what it is? Well, because that's the final question. When somebody is talking to a sales rep on the phone or they're on a landing page and think looking at a order form, a buy now button, something like that. So the answers to that have to be in their mind. Yeah. So you were just talking about why you, why now? And I was saying that's foundational for everything else. And you say you start to talk with a sales rep. So that's why if, if there's a genie and if I could have a, a value proposition, that's a no brainer to, to make a decision right now with you, it's game set and match. So yes, you're in the same category as other products that or services that could solve their problem. But if you've got a unique value proposition that is very compelling and easy to understand, a value proposition shouldn't be like a paragraph. It's a series of maybe two or three short sentences. Okay. So one, this is always the first place that you start once you've done your first analysis of where the business is. Once you've looked at the data, seen what the demographics are, how are they behaving, kind of getting a feel for the story of who the customer really is for a business. Now you, you go back and you say, okay, now how is this value proposition? How, how powerful I, is it? How can I strengthen the value prop? Or how can I create a better engagement story that is the story that leads up to the final sales, the sales story? So tell us about the engagement story. How is the engagement story related to the value proposition? Because it must be. There's sort of people in the world that could benefit from your product or service. They're out there right now. There's tens of thousands of them for almost any business. So you would have to create traffic. So find a way to get a message in front of those people. So my preferred way is to do advertising. And then the ads are the engagement message that's going to get them to click and bring them to your website or to your, to your content. So that's going to bring them to you. That's the engagement story, or that's the beginning of the engagement story, because the engagement story starts at the ad copy that brought them in. That was the interest message. And then there's an engagement message that hopefully performs the, the function of holding people's attention for three to five minutes. So this interest is the, the first part of your ad, whatever gets them started in, down this path of looking at our company. The engagement story is what really pulls them in. Yeah, and I used to think it really mattered that what brought them in 
had to be coherent with the rest of the engagement story and the final sales story. Now I don't think that so much anymore. I think that it's all about the transition. You have to be able to transition them from whatever brought them in, in then into your engagement story. So frequently in advertising, what people are interested in is not what is really, it's not the thing that they're after. There's two different things that like with the person that comes to you and says, okay, I want to do a product launch and I really need help with traffic. That's yeah. what they're interested in. Yeah. But are you saying that then you're going to take them from that and say, well, you know, actually that's, that is, those are important elements, but let's get you in. And then you start telling your engagement story and then you help them by the end of it go, Oh no, I actually want to work with Craig. Cause Craig's not just going to give me the things that someone told me I needed. He's going to hear me out and then he's going to develop a plan. And this is, there's like a whole, approach here versus just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. I think my clients want to work with me because I'm going to make money with them, not from them. Yeah. I want to apply my skills and experience and the wide variety of tools that I use to make money for them. Okay. So you've partnered it up with them essentially by yeah. being on their side versus being across the table, doing an exchange with them. Exactly. I think that's just a better way. Well, that's, that's essentially the value proposition then. Yeah, that's my differentiating value proposition. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of other digital marketers out there that are good, but all of them want you to pay them for their time or for a project or for a module or something. I want to make money with you. I want you to sell your thing and let me come up with a structure that'll, that'll make it work. For those that weren't paying attention to what was happening, because there's two levels of everything that goes on at least, obviously more levels than that, but there's what seems to be happening on the surface. So case in point, I teach an early morning seminary class to high school students. And we were talking about some scripture and they were reading the scripture. It was talking about an interaction. And I said, okay, well, what does that actually tell you about God? Now, so there was the interaction, which is where most people focus. And then there was the, what can you infer from that? So what was happening here is you were teaching us about value proposition and engagement story. But really, if someone was paying attention fully, and you may have to rewind to, to really pick up on this, Craig, at the same time, was showing us an example of an engagement story. Because you, you were presenting the value proposition through that whole process of what you're talking about. So I know you weren't intending to sell in this conversation. It wasn't my intention. It was to create an example. Yeah, but it was a natural part of how you communicate because these things have become ingrained into you. And so the, the engagement story was exemplified as well as explained there. So if you go back and rewind this and listen to it again, pay attention to what Craig is talking about, what he's saying. And what you'll see is he's really creating an engagement story. I think it was unconscious competence because I know you weren't trying to sell anything on this. We were just trying to teach guys. But, but I think that the center of the engagement story is, and there's a really good book about that human beings have only seven different major arcs of story. Mm -hmm. so one is boy versus girl. Maybe one is sort of like the whodunit. And then the, the most popular one recently is manifested by story brand or 20 years before. So story brand apparently invented it recently because nobody has any memory of anything that happened in the past. <laughs> it was very popular in the 80s was the Heroes Epic. It was taught by Joseph Campbell on the KPBS series. But it, that's sort of like the arc of the story of Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, the first is the coming to awareness. I'm not worthy. And then seeking uh, an expert to help you go on the guide to go challenge the monster. You know, the, 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 you've got to go. It's, it's a great story. It's yeah. a classic art. It's embedded in 
almost all cultures, works pretty much everywhere in the world, but it's just one arc of a story. But if, if you simplify it to its core, what the buyer is going through is they're in a position that, they, that it's not so good and they want to get to a place that's, that's really good, that's better. And so they, you've got to both describe the place of where they're at right now better than they normally can articulate it. Yes. Articulate the, the new place they're trying to go to. And then there's like a chasm between the two. And the reason that they're giving you money is to help them navigate that chasm because they don't have the skills, they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the time, whatever it is to be able to, to do that on their own. So that's where they're hiring you as a guide to buy your product, or your service, to bring them from, let me use an example, we're going to do a kitchen remodel. So we have a kitchen, which we like, but we want it. We have a vision of a better kitchen. So as I'm consulting with these different contractors, I need them to help me visualize what the new future condition would be. And then what are all the problems that, that I've got to encounter along the way? Like redoing electricity, redoing gas line, redoing the roof and venting. Bringing up all the problems is something that I think a lot of business owners in the marketing assume the prospect already knows. But I think it's very important to bring those up. But, that, yeah, so you're saying you need to be explicit about pointing out all the potential problems because there's a good likelihood they're not aware of any of them, or at least not many of them, like they should be in order to make a smart decision. Because the skilled guide can tell you all the pitfalls along the journey, and you're hiring them as a Sherpa. If, if you're selling whatever, like the kitchen remodel, I'm hiring you because you're going to be my guide to go from where I, I am to give my wife the kitchen that she dreams of. We really all are looking for these guides all over the place. Dan Kennedy put a little bit more crudely. He said, we're all walking around with their umbilical cord in their hand, looking for somewhere to plug in. But in, in reality, all of us are looking for some sort of guide, but we just need to know we can trust them. So I think the engagement story at its core is about doing a better job of describing their current condition or doing a better job of describing the future condition or doing a really good job of explaining the pitfalls. Yeah, any one of those is, is very interesting and very compelling to people that are interested in whatever your offer is. Yeah. And I've always felt that if you could redefine the problem in a way and describe the problem, because they would describe their problem one way and you describe it differently, you win. Oh my God, that is, that is really my problem. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now I know what you're talking about. So show me how that's going to work. You know, what's funny is I was just thinking about the fact that many people, you know, can get caught in the wrong place and they'll go, well, why are Ryan and Craig, if they're so smart, why are they talking about all this story stuff and value proposition? I want to hear some fancy automation stuff, but that's exactly the problem, isn't it? Yeah. They spend all their money on the whipped cream and, and the, the frosting on the cake and they don't bake a good basic cake. I call all the, the marketing automation things mechanics, right? Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, you do, you do need some sort of mechanics in order to implement a good marketing program. But if you don't have the, this meat of the actual offer, the value proposition, the engagement story, if you, you know, if you don't really have these items, then what you have is a bunch of bones with no flesh on them. And so this is like the real flesh that makes the whole thing work. The mechanics are only valuable to the extent that they facilitate. In fact, I would go so far as to say, and this is kind of maybe self-defeating in some ways, but I would go so as far as to say is if somebody had a really great value proposition engagement story and then 
they had kind of weak mechanics. I mean, the mechanics weren't the best. They will outperform the person that's got great mechanics, but terrible story and offer proposition. And Absolutely. Because there's nothing there. It's a, it's a nothing burger. You need to have something there. I've spent a lot of time looking at lots of competitive websites. So the web is scattered with a bunch of websites that hold people's attention for one minute and they look at one page and they leave. Yeah. Who makes a decision in one minute for something substantial? So that lack of engagement is, is the greatest problem sort of across the web for all these small businesses. But if you can hold someone's attention for five minutes and talk about their problem, you can get them to look at three to five pages of your content, you win. That's the better story. And the better story will always beat. Because I can then, then I just steal the, the tactics that drive traffic for those people that are running them to a bad story or that bad value prop. You have some things that we won't even touch on that give you some serious advantages, but those only come because you you focus on the core first. Yeah. If you didn't know who you, who you actually are trying to sell to, because you did didn't do the demographic information, you didn't do the comparison or analysis on content consumption and that interaction. If you didn't do that, and then if you didn't take the time to say, okay, why me? And why now? How am I going to help them to see that they should choose my business now? And then you didn't put together a good story where you talk about their current reality better than they can describe it, the future reality and the way that they can imagine it, and then all the pitfalls in between how you can help them through that. You, all the rest is for naught. Yes. And it's, it's most common that people kick that down the road. And they figure it out. And it's like, that's the first thing to strategize. You know, it's because it makes the head hurt. Well, because until you, until you do some tries, you realize that I don't know how to do this. And I've, I've got the wrong people as my customer. I, I, I don't have a story that's engaging. Can you make this story? Can you make them want that? That's really on some level what people are asking frequently. They don't like it. You just need a new story. You need a new value prop. You brought up at the beginning, and I've, I've said the same thing. The reason so many bit small businesses go out of business is I say cash flow, and you also throw in a really important concept, which is the heart part, which is hope, right? But hope, I think, hinges in large degree on cash flow. It, you have to have the cash flow long enough that you can learn what business you're actually in and hopefully get everything else aligned to that. You talk about business models being a really critical discovery. Like, what is the proper business model given your circumstances? Do you mind if we jump to that and talk about yeah. how do you evaluate that? There's a lot of the different elements in business model, but if you bring it down to the three core things that I, that I care about, what are you willing to spend to get a customer? What is, their, what is the dollar amount of their first transaction with you? And what is the lifetime value of that customer? From that, you, can, you know actually how you should be structuring your marketing. So I believe in most cases, in many cases that I choose not to work on, they have a bad business model. Marketing. Are business models recoverable? Like if a company has a bad business model, can you reform it? Yeah, of course. And what gets in the way though of reformation? Let's imagine you're, you're a normal broke massage therapist that's selling a transaction and not busy and not busy and then sells another transaction. This person probably doesn't even have any realization that their, their inventory is timed either. Yeah. But they need to, if they can kind of understand that, then they would realize that the coolest business model that's been run in their category is Massage Envy. It sold $40 a month subscription. So 
then then that shapes everything about fulfillment and shifts everything about being able to to get customers. That's interesting. Yeah, because you wouldn't traditionally think of uh, a service that is a time for money business being able to convert itself to recurring revenue. But if you can if you can convert to recurring revenue and sign someone up, then you're worried about because you can spend more because the li- expected lifetime value is what you're trying to live on, and you're trying to make sure that you 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 don't have high churn rate and that people don't unsubscribe. But it's like membership sites are a good example of that because then then you would be worried about just the right people that'll stay for two years. So then you yeah. you tend to put your focus on on choosing the right people, not just getting more people to to do a transaction with you. That, that was probably the the luckiest thing that happened to Trent and I when we started our short sale genius company was that we happened to stumble into because we were we were standing in the parking lot the day before we did our first presentation, where were we going to sell? And Trent said, "Okay, I think we should give this calculator to them." And I, just something I had heard, you know, before that, fortunately, it came to my mind, which was, no, you want a membership of some sort. <laughs> so I didn't understand why, right? I didn't know that the, the whole cash flow was going to be critical. I didn't know that you weren't going to get enough up front in your sale to really grow a business that would be fantastic. And so we just stumbled upon it. But that literally saved our financial lives in terms of our business because, when all of our competition who didn't have the recurring revenue portion to the model, they just had this front end and they were higher front end in some ways. As soon as the front end education portion of the market dried up, they were out of business and bankrupt. Yeah. Because we had created a recurring revenue model in addition to the upfront first purchase, not only were we able to continue marketing well past the time that they were out of business, but we had, four years after that of recurring revenue that they never saw. And so for me, it's really difficult because I've gotten so, I don't know, I don't want to use the word addicted, although that's almost what it is, to the recurring revenue concept that I I almost can't imagine being in a business that didn't have it. Are there some business models that don't have recurring revenue that you still see as being viable? Yeah, but many of those are, they, they have a high initial transaction and then somebody's got like, for example, a medical condition and they need a wheelchair and they're going to need it again in five years and need it again in 10 years. So, you know, so there's still a recurring element to it. It's just not a subscription. It's not a subscription. You're going to get, you're going to get routine repurchases. So those customer types, those business models are always better than just a transactional one because I can go, I can go toe to toe with a transactional one. I can drive them out of business. I can take all their customers or I can buy them. And you know, let's, let's go to the other level of marketing. So most of the people we're talking to are, are in, they've made a choice that the big business question that you have is here's a customer, here's a problem that they've got. Should we go build from scratch a solution for that? That's the build option. So most of the people that are listening to this are probably just default chose a build. And then, you know, when I worked for big companies, our question was always, should we build it or buy it? So if somebody, if you see a competitor in a space that it's got a low lifetime value and you've got a bigger lifetime value, you should buy their business, buy their customers and convert them to your higher price to offer. 
because those customers can be better served. You're offering more value to them and then you're making more earnings from it. For the person that fell into the, the build first, you're saying once they get to a certain point where they have the capital or they have at least the, the system and the program. So they've gone through the steps you've talked about. They've, they've actually be, turned marketing into an investment instead of an expense. Because yeah, you need to hit the point, the, the, the most magical point where marketing is no longer an expense because most of the people listening to this, marketing is still at an expense. Because yeah. when you shift from, from that to it being an investment, it, it's miraculous you know, how these small businesses say, I've only got so much money a month that I can afford to use for marketing. So that, that is the tell that says marketing is an expense. They haven't got to the point where it's an investment. So the, the cool businesses are when you spend $10,000 or spend $1,000, you're going to make that, you're going to get that money back and a certain amount of money on top of it. So like you know, I've got running one right now in, again, the wheelchair space. We spent $1,000 last week. And we made $130,000 in revenue. They might want to spend another $1,000. Yeah. So then, of course, it took like two hours after he looked at that report to say, Craig, I want to put $20,000 into it this month. Now, and what you're saying is a natural progression when you get your business into that stage is now you can say, oh, who else is my competitor but hasn't figured out the business model and the marketing model? What else could I do like this? Because now I get digital. Now, now I get the magic of this. Okay, so you mentioned that is every business model, so every business model does have some form of recurring purchase that will happen in it that you like. I would say, yeah. Because that allows you to increase the lifetime customer value in a way that you can afford to spend a little bit more to get the customer in the first place. I like cosmetic surgery because people get cosmetic surgery, have something done. And then six months later, they look in the mirror and there's something else that they want to have done. So the average person has five procedures. So you're selling the first procedure. So you're using that to recoup your career relationship and to create real value so that that person's going to come back to you again and again and again. So the first transaction may be $5,000, but that customer is going to be worth $50,000 over the next 10 years. Love, love those models. So you, you have to have your model in place to make sure that you're able to have a good return on investment for your marketing dollar. Because you can run, you do the first thing for free, a free trial offer, and you're going to lose money to create a customer, and then you're going to live on the lifetime value. That's that's a valuable marketing model because there's there's two things. That, okay, so that, this is where your marketing model starts to marry in with your business model. Yeah, because that the marketing model is going to tell you where you're going to spend time, attention, and money. So if it's a back end, if you're making your money on LTV and repeat purchases, then it's all going to be about making sure the first transaction is good enough that you get the second transaction then you're nurturing uh, to, to customers to get them to buy again. There's an underlying assumption in this whole thing that a lot of people, and that not everybody has, I shouldn't say a lot of people, some people don't have, but that you have here, which is that you recognize the value and importance of the customer relationship and making sure that's a quality experience for the customer because it's not about the transaction, it's about the lifetime. It is. I think that's true even to transactional-based businesses. Because you want to be able to turn every customer into somebody that gives you a review and then refers their yeah. friends and family. So that tells you that you're delivering value. 
not just creating a transaction that you made something and took some of their pain away. So I think a lot of people are sloppy with it. But the big principle that I think is you have to have a really good business model because that's going to tell you how you're going to allocate money and then when money is going to come back to you. So, you know, part of that, the business model that we didn't talk about, we talked about it before we got on, on this webinar, was the cash cycle in the business. So talk a little bit more about the cash cycle. I know it seems self-evident for you. Okay. Well, the cash cycle is, you know, any accountant here, your accountant should, everyone should have a good bookkeeper and an accountant, but they can explain it to you. So if like, I'll use an example of my medical device business, because I've been running that thing for 20 years and kind of know it like the back of my hand. So I've got to go buy inventory, you know, which is in, in many cases, fabric that's going to then be sent over to somebody to be slit and then to be sewn together. And then we do final assembly on it. So before an order can ship, we have to buy the raw materials to turn it into the form of the product that's going to be put in a box and shipped off and their credit card's going to be run. So I have to place orders. So that's putting cash out. And then it gets converted to a point when it's almost ready to be the final product. Or in the case of we buy lots of thermoplastic. So then we load it into our injection mold, these little pellets, it's melted down and then it's reformed in, in the shape of the, the product that they're buying. We glue the pieces together, put it in a box and run their credit card. So before I can ship a product that you were gonna buy today, I had to invest money upfront in inventory that's sitting somewhere in my supply chain. You know, because I have outside contractors doing a lot of work. And then the final form of it arrives at my doorstep. And then I can assemble those things, count it, inspect it, put it in a box, run your credit card. And then I get money right there. The credit card transactions, the money is available off of once the, put, the product is shipped on a common carrier, I can run your credit card and I have availability of that money in 48 hours. So my real cash cycle, because I have to put cash out for inventory 30 days beforehand, in some case, 60 days beforehand for inventory for a physical product business. And then I do have a lot of my product is going through big distributors. So those big distributors in our contracts, they have to pay us within 30 days. The average result over the last 20 years is they pay us in 47 days. So I plan that if once we put the product in a box and ship it, we aren't gonna see that money for two months. So that means my cash cycle is I have to put product, I have to put money out into inventory 30 days before I can actually put it, you know, have the final product ready, put it in a box. And then after that, I'm waiting out the terms. So many people that are selling info products or, you know, on-demand services, they have uh, a different problem. It's kind of related to the cash problem, but what do you have to put money out for the fulfillment side? And so I like high margin businesses, when you get when you have good cash cycles, so an information product or a software service like yours, you yeah. you had to invest years in advance, hundreds of thousands of dollars in programming. Go test it, clean the code up, and that that's just a laborious process. So when you make an incremental investment in creating a new feature for your product that you think is going to get more customers to sign up for your product, how long is it before you get that investment money back? If you sell a subscription that bought it for that added feature. Yeah. See, I don't even think about that because I'm not aware of my cash cycle the same way. I couldn't even tell you how much it costs because we have, you know, six different developers that are working on stuff at different points in time, you know, 
So you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars building features that, I mean, on some level, you look at that as overhead, but really that's an, that's an investment that can be amortized. Yeah. And that in, in my case, you know, sometimes we'll build products that nobody uses too. That's the, that's the problem. And when the credit card, you don't have the other side, which is once somebody signs up, they promise to pay in 30 and they pay in 60 or 90 or 120 or whatever. Yeah. Because you don't have that problem because you can immediately turn it off. It's a little bit different from your situation where the industry has already set the terms on what's acceptable. But the big principle is the business model determines your financial structure. You should be making decisions of investment in fulfillment. But it also tells you that you need to marry your marketing structure to your business model. So you have to have an alignment between the marketing style that you're going to use. Because I see it sometimes people go to a course and they say, I want to do a Walker style product launch because they attended a seminar, read a book or watched a tape or something. And and it's like, yeah, if you're going to do that with your business model, you're going to go bankrupt. Because not all business models lend themselves to that marketing model. You you were mentioning, and maybe we'll close at this point because you've invested a good amount of time with us and I appreciate that, that you were talking to somebody that had a, a high amount of social clout uh, on social networks mm-hmm. and they, they were thinking that they wanted to do this product launch and it was immediately obvious to you that this would be a big failure for them. Well, because the asset that they had was a million Facebook likes and they, they had 3,000 people on their email list. That doesn't match up well, does it? That meant that we were going to have to figure out how to turn Facebook likes into people visiting this, a page. That should be the, the entire focus. And then from there, then you can figure out what you want the structure of the launch to be like or, or the recurring revenue. This is a recurring revenue business. Well, that's very good. Well, hey, thanks so much. This has been really good. I know that's kind of a weird way a place to stop, but I feel like we could go on for another couple hours because there's so much in terms of deep stuff. There was something that you mentioned to me when we talked uh, earlier this week that if I'm trying to find a piece of paper, because I, I wrote down a note, it was on sales and we didn't even touch on that. Oh, Pete Fortunato's thing. I yeah, that, we'll have to do that another time. Absolute genius in what he does. He's a real estate investor, dude. He's just talking about using your mind rather than using money to invest in real estate. Yeah, that was ingenious, but I, I think that deserves more than a few minutes to break down. So we'll save that for another time. I you should introduce, introduce you to him and he should tell you about how he does it. I just thought, I, I always like hearing what he talks about, but how he frames his value prop is amazing. Yeah, it was a really good example of that, that whole concept. We'll have to do it another time. Okay. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much, Craig. Good. I know you don't, you're not looking necessarily for a ton of customers um, because you already have a good portfolio, but if someone, would you even want someone to reach out to you if they thought they could be a match? Yeah, I guess. You know, I do discovery with people all the time. We don't say yes all the time. Yeah. They you're very, very discerning about who you will work with. Because I'm mostly making money not from people for selling them a, 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 an agreed to menu of things that, that a checklist of things that we did. We did this, we did this, we did this. You're partnering up actually on results, right? So I've got to believe that, that this can really grow and it can really change the world and make the world a better place. And 
they're going to go through the learning process, which is a very, you know, my core belief is that marketing at its core is really simple. It's just very hard to do. It just requires a lot of mental energy out of people that, that can be difficult to commit to. And it requires a certain amount of patience and flexibility because there's nothing that I've ever done that we drew up the plan and the plan worked the way we thought it was going to work. It's like an element works and you modify that and you add another element and like you're always in the middle of. And you'll radically change people's business models. Well, if they're open to that, it isn't isn't my intention. I mean, well, it's the intention is to help them make more money, do a better job at serving their customer base. And sometimes that does require some pretty significant adjustments and not everybody's open to that. Most people, most of these small entrepreneurs don't want to create a business that'll actually grow, that's investable, that, that they can invest in, that investors can invest in, and they don't think about their exit. All, they, all they're doing is that they've got a job. Yeah. Well, you've given me a lot to think about as well. I appreciate that. My pleasure. Thanks again, Craig. Oh, oh no, that, that was the last thing I wanted to ask you is how could someone reach out if they did think that they might qualify? Openspacesmarketing.com. Okay. Openspacesmarketing. Or I guess you can Google Craig Jacobson. Let's see what I'm, you find, huh? I'm the marketing Craig Jacobson. There's a Beverly Hills entertainment attorney that also shows up. I'm not that. That's not you right now. No, never will be. <laughs> well thanks again this has been really good i'm going to be re-listening to this one a couple times oh i would say the other the other thing that i didn't touch on in business model so i yeah. talked about you know a cost of acquiring the customer initial transaction lifetime value and the other big question is what's your exit what's your end game is this a build it and sell it to some other company or to another individual and then what is going to be the value, the basis of the valuation of them uh, buying your business? What are they going to be buying? So should we, should we be building that as an asset from the beginning? Not have that be a happy coincidence. Yeah. That, you know, that's, those are questions that we just don't think about enough as we get into business as a small business owner, which Better. I guess a small business job owner. It's always yeah. good to, to, to be paid twice for the same work. Yeah, I would think be paid so. while, while you're operating a profitable business and be paid again when somebody else buys it from you. Well, you know, I have to f- finish by saying this. It, Craig was the one that introduced me to texting. I was starting to dabble in it, but then you pushed me in a direction that really got me looking into it deeper and allowed us to really start what Fixture Funnels become so. Well, I really appreciate you and appreciate the leadership that you take in being able to help and serve these small business owners to give them the information that they need to be able to, to be more successful and in building the tools that help them do that. It's tough enough to be in business. We got to help people so that they hopefully can avoid some of the more painful parts. Yep. Yeah.